Hey there, I'm Pete Townsend, and this is Money Never Sleeps. We look inside the minds of entrepreneurs and at the crossover of startups, enterprise, finance, technology, and life as we know it. This episode of Money Never Sleeps is sponsored by Securicentrics. Securicentrics is a trusted cybersecurity company with offices in Dublin, Cape Town, and London. Securicentrics provides expert advisory services, primarily in the finance and fintech industries, with tailored security solutions to fit your specific needs and regulatory challenges. On the show this week, we've got... Hi, my name is Amora Saxon, and I'm Head of International Operations for Blockdaemon. Blockdaemon provides institutional-grade blockchain infrastructure, enabling businesses such as exchanges, banks, custodians, trusts, lenders, protocols, and others to stake, scale, and deploy nodes featuring MPC or multi-party computing, multi-chain APIs, and proof-of-stake validation. In this episode, Amora and I talk through her path into blockchain that led her to Blockdaemon, including some of the highlights of her time with Citi, BNP Paribas, and Coinbase in the last decade. We also dive into Blockdaemon and the impact of the Ethereum merge on the Blockdaemon strategy. Finally, we riff on the character traits that have enabled Amor to become an experienced global leader with extensive commercial, legal, and operational experience and a diverse background that includes, get ready for this, operations, strategy and commercialization, marketing and communications, regulatory and legal, and design and delivery of enterprise-grade products and solutions. All right here on Money Never Sleeps. Hey, Amora, how's it going? Good, thank you. Awesome to have you on the show. It's been a long time coming. It's nice to be here. Great. Well, listen, you've done so many things in your career and so incredibly versatile and just thrilled to be having this chat with you and digging in a bit into some of the things that happened that got you to this point, but also learn more about Block Damon and the, the critical importance of Block Damon to the overall Web3 ecosystem and blockchain in general. Okay. So maybe just to get started, can you share some of the foundational experiences that are, were critical to getting you to the point in your career that you are right now? Sure. I mean, I think maybe if we start at the very beginning, it sounds like a strange yeah. thing to say it was a foundational point, but um, I spent the first few years dabbling around a little bit, wasn't quite sure of the direction I wanted to head, ended up doing a number of different roles from marketing roles to administration roles, getting involved in startups. And then I went back to, to university and got a law degree, which kind of set me on the career path that I'm on now, and then moved from law into innovation, which is a very unusual jump. There was a connection there because I specialized in blockchain and crypto law back in Australia. And when I moved to Ireland, I wasn't sure that I wanted to requalify, but because I'd been doing that work, I was able to join Citibank and lead their national digital money portfolio because my legal kind of my legal experience and knowledge is, and, and crypto experience was helpful in that context. So I think between that and then, you know, working in innovation, technology and financial services over the last seven years, the, the very different roles, as you said, plus my legal career and then my experience in finance and banking have kind of given me a good horizontal view of what it takes to run a business, especially in the crypto space or the blockchain space. Yeah, incredible. And, you know, that just in looking at your background and being aware of a lot of it, but seeing even more all of the different colors of this come out and you know, you've mentioned City, and there was BNP Paribas in there, Coinbase, Blockdaemon now, sales recruitment media, PR and comms, lawyer, yeah. consultant Lots. advisor, 
blockchain workshop facilitator, innovation manager, digital transformation leader, CX, UX, operations, strategy, and now your role with Blockdaemon. So that diversity is incredible. Uh, and to and I think in, in the chats that we've had around, obviously, you know, you were a wonderful mentor on our Techstars Web3 program and the chats that we've had around that, that your diversity in skills and adaptability really come to fore. So it's, you know, any anything that you can point to in the backdrop of what was the moment in crypto and blockchain for you that made you sit up and say, well, listen, this is an area that I'm going to pursue. Yeah, I think I think one of the things that's guided my career because is is just my like insatiable lack of my insatiable curiosity. I just I I'm always curious. I love a challenge. The meatier a challenge, the more I like to get in and figure it out. And that's probably why I've had so many different roles. But for the the crypto one in particular, I was working for a law firm who specialized in startups. And we had, it was December 2013, and we had an Australian startup walk through our door in Sydney saying that they were a Bitcoin merchant services company. And we were like, what, <laughs> what is Bitcoin? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think what really attracted me to it in the first place was just that challenge that I, I spoke about, the intellectual challenge there. At the time, no one even knew what it was, let alone how to regulate it and you know, I remember one of the things I did back at the beginning of my my journey in crypto was look at the Australian tax laws and try and see what was the most appropriate way to tax Bitcoin. And one of the challenges that we had back then was the fact that a lot of the arguments were saying that it's intangible, so you can't exercise property rights over it. And we ended up using this argument from a case I'd read about in university with native title fishing rights where the High Court in Australia said, well, something doesn't necessarily have to be tangible for you to exercise proprietary rights. It's kind of funny because it's the one case I didn't read before my exam and it haunted me for years and then I was so excited when I got to use it. Fishing rights. Yeah, native title fishing rights. And I think that's what initially drew me to the industry. It was more of the intellectual challenge that groundbreaking concepts that really challenged the paradigms that had existed for so long. And then from there, it, it kind of it kind of grew with the excitement about the possibilities that the technology could bring. But it was really that first, the first kind of major challenge of trying to figure out what it is, how is it different, how can we contextualize it for the knowledge that people have today. That's fascinating because I've been talking about recently to a few different folks that the whole initial cypherpunk effort of where Bitcoin came from in that the originators of Bitcoin, and I think we all can say with a fair enough degree of certainty that it wasn't just one individual named Satoshi Nakamoto, right? The creation of peer-to-peer electronic cash, the originators of this just set out to prove that you could own data. And that there, whether that was some type of value or some type of other data point or file or whatever, that you could have this provenance and this, you could demonstrate that there is ownership of a piece of virtual property or data or something in the virtual world, okay, using the internet or using distributed computing. You could go down a big rabbit hole with this. And... But the the first thing that they happened to say, well, let's see if we can do this, because a lot of the people that were involved with this had tried with this e-cash push before to be able to do something in this space with in creation of a crypto type token. And when you talk about things like fishing rights, that just points to this, is that 
you know, the legal similarities between an intangible piece of data that actually has value and an intangible, whether it's an agreement or whether it is something that is granted to somebody, it is the right to be able to actually fish. The, yeah. the similarity there is just so striking that it all came back to that. I just, uh, yeah, it, it's probably one of the high moments in my career, mainly because it, I did really bad in that exam because I hadn't bothered to read that. <laughs> There was like three major cases that you needed to read and there was a whole question just on that case and I walked out of that exam shell-shocked just going, oh, my God, I can't believe you forgot to read that case. And so it was something that literally haunted me. And I don't know if I hadn't made that mess up at university and if I hadn't forgotten for that exam, would I would it have come to mind later on when we were looking at Bitcoin or not? So I think all the stars aligned at the right, right. moment. Awesome. Awesome. And why don't we move into, into Block Damon? And sure. tell me about the source of your conviction on why this is the perfect thing for you to be working on right now with the context of Blockdame and, and, and the latest with what's going on with the business, yeah? Sure. So I, I guess a little bit about Blockdame and it's, it's really, it's a, it's a Web3 infrastructure company. So the idea is, you know, especially for institutional clients, the idea is that we're essentially the backbone of the Web3 industry when it comes to infrastructure. So it's use, use case agnostic. We support many, many different institutional clients for whatever use case they have. And it's everything from nodes to validators, APIs, MPC technology. And I think that's why I like the company so much. And I think that's what really drew it to me as well, because the industry itself is continually evolving and growing. And I love the fact that because we're infrastructure and we're use case agnostic, we can really play a pivotal role in helping the industry grow and helping the ecosystems grow, but we're not necessarily tied to the specific trends or the ups and downs. It's not that we're immune, but we're, we, you know, we, as long as we build great technology and we, we have that foundation that our clients can use, they can launch whatever use case they're looking to launch and we can really kind of support the growth and continue to to play a, a, a big role in the evolution of the industry without having to, I guess, without having to be tied to a specific concept of what blockchain can be. Because I think people are still figuring out all the different ways that you can use it. And the, the utilization of the technology is still very much a, a, a changing and evolving thing. Yeah, definitely. You know, that brings to mind two points or more is that one, there are, I was looking at this last night for something, and I think there's, you know, I have been referencing 30 million daily active users of MetaMask wallets. And MetaMask is the most popular of the Web3 wallets. There's tons of other ones out there, but that would be where the majority is probably alongside Coinbase wallet and, and a number of others. Okay. And it, it's, it's still, like you said, for those of us in this space, it's huge and it's massive and important, but the space overall from a global perspective is still pretty small, but that the, the opportunity for where things will go. Someone was asking me about uh, metaverse yesterday and the overall economic projections for a metaverse economy being somewhere in the region of, you know, five to 13 trillion. And obviously blockchain uh, powers, or this may not be obviously to everybody, but at least from, you know, the, 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 where my thesis lies and where my beliefs are is that blockchain is a significant enabler of metaverse and that for that to all operate, with fluency and very low latency and being able to have people immersed in these 3D virtual worlds, you're going to need to stand up an awful lot of nodes 
right? An awful lot of blockchain yeah. nodes in order to do that. So even though the, the industry that Block Daemon are servicing right now, and incredibly very, you know, a very successful role in the industry right now, on the global scheme of things, it is a small industry, but one that has significantly important growth potential for the global economy as we move ahead. Yeah. 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 I think I, I mean, I've been in the industry now since December, 2013. So I've seen many different permeations of what the industry is focused on and mm. the way, and by that, I mean kind of trends and how they use the technology. And I think that's why the infrastructure play is so exciting to me because I've, I've been through a few different iterations and I know there's going to be many more iterations and I, this isn't my idea. It's an idea that actually one of a really, really smart member of the Sydney blockchain community gave me years ago, but he drew the analogy between blockchain and containerization in the shipping industry. The idea that what it, it really gave was this, this way to securely move value from point A to point B and value in shipping was the cargo and here it's data. And so I think in the same way that the containerization really transformed the global economy really because it made it it made globalization of trade that much more efficient and you know it changed it changed the way docks operated, it changed the shape of ships, it changed it, it really had this phenomenal effect across the world. I, I think I'm I'm not saying the blockchain will have the same level of impact, but I think because that simple concept of being able to tokenize data, being able to ascribe a characteristic to that data, whether it's identity, whether it's financial or otherwise, and being able to secure the transfer of that across a network. I, I just think that's that's just going to mean that there's so many different things that people can use it for in the future. There's things we know like metaverse and there's things we just, they're not even on our radar yet. Yeah. And you, the one thing they all have, like you said, is it's nodes, it's, private key management and technology. It's even, I even think that I love our ubiquity product to the API suite because maybe you don't need a node. Maybe you just need to be able to access the network and be able to write to nodes or interact with nodes. And I think all of those different types of ways that we can provide an easier way for people to participate in networks. I think that's that's really what we do and that's what excites me about it because we can watch the ecosystem grow across all of the different participants in all of the different ways that they want to interact. Yeah, definitely. And like looking back 20 years ago and seeing before these cycles began with blockchain and, and crypto was, you know, a little thing called the dot-com burst in 2001 and being right in the middle of that because I had, my dad had asked me, back at that point, I was working, I just finished working for Fidelity. And he said, Pete, what would be a good Fidelity fund for me to put some money into for, you know, uh, two, three years? And I said, oh, there's this great emerging tech fund that was completely tied to NASDAQ in 2001. And that dropped from 5,000 to like 1,300, almost mirroring the Ethereum <laughs> levels of price drop that we've seen. And, you know, the, the, the companies that came out of that, like my uncle was working for someone called Bay Networks at the time, who ended up being acquired by Cisco. Right, all the infrastructure that Cisco built for the internet to start scaling, what, and they've been an incredibly successful global player now. So I'm kind of—I know there are way too many analogies and parallels drawn between what was built after the dot-com crash. That was the first one of these that we had seen in a while in terms of significant market drop, or the first one that we saw that was tied to kind of overinflation of technology. 
um, and the valuations around that. And now we've been through probably four crypto cycles now, but it's the last one, probably the last two that have been the most prominent in terms of at least media attention and seeing the companies that have uh, weathered the storm throughout that, you know, picks and shovels is kind of where, you know, it feels like the good money's at, you know? Yeah. No, definitely. I think, but I think again, that comes back to the idea of recognizing that some things in the industry are going to last the test of time and are pervasive. And then other things are a, a trend, I guess, a trend of what people happen to be interested in as far as using the technology at a particular point in time yeah, and yeah. differentiating between that. And I think the media, the media and the general public, if they're not there, what they hear about are the trends they, you know, and, and that's always going to be what gets the focus and being able to separate the noise from a, that relates to a specific trend and looking at the technology and being able to critically, critically analyze that as a, a kind of a, a separate opportunity, I think is really important. It's, it's just like, you know, people use the internet for many different things and you don't kind of say the internet is, <laughs> is doomed and never going to go anywhere. You look at the particular things and activities that people are carrying out using Web2 technology and the internet. Let me take a minute to tell you more about our sponsors. Securicentric strives to be the trusted partner that secures your information assets deemed critical for your business. Securicentric also delivers the highest level of security expertise and support to their clients. Even further, Securicentric provides independent cybersecurity assessments and advisory against best practice industry standards and compliance frameworks. Working as an extension of your team, Securicentrics helps you recognize and control data risk to your business by understanding your level of risk. In short, Securicentrics provides many solution offerings from assessment and advisory, managed security services, cloud and infrastructure validation, vulnerability management and testing, and payment security. Get in touch with the team at Securicentrics.com to learn more or email info at Securicentrics.com. That's S-E-C-U-R-I-C-E-N-T-R-I-X dot com. And well, as I'm looking to rebuild my investment thesis for the next Techstars program, I am pointing to infrastructure, right? And one of the things I'm thinking about that I want to get your insight on is that right now in the crypto space, there are a lot of propositions that are consumer focused or individual focused and that would be based on perhaps bringing a token to market that incentivizes users and developers and that is intrinsically linked to your value proposition and the two are packaged together. You build a decentralized network, you scale that over five years, your token eventually becomes representative of the value of what you've created. Okay. And there's obviously a lot of regulatory lenses on this now in terms of what is a token and is that a security or is it not a security? And that is changing. It feels like in the US on a daily basis, at least, but in the, you know, in Europe, we have the, the Mika or Mika, depending upon how you want to say it. I never pick one or the other. I, yeah. Um, I, regulation. I say Mika. <laughs> Mika. Okay. Thank yeah. you. Like the artist who was surprisingly, I was at a 
what was it? The Oxygen Music Festival in Ireland years ago. And Mika, the artist, was surprisingly good. I didn't go to see Mika, but he played there and he was surprisingly a good entertainer. But I'm a, um, my Australian accent notoriously butchers things, though, so I wouldn't necessarily <laughs> use my okay. pronunciation as the go-to one. <laughs> my daughter watches this Australian show called Little Lunch, and oh, she's yeah, now trying to yeah. mimic the Australian accent, and she's getting quite good at that. She's getting quite good I've at that. I've heard you clench your teeth when you talk. Apparently, that's the secret to it. There you go. Okay, I'll, I'll I'll clue her in on that. I'll let her know. But the, you know, where was I going with this? That oh, okay. So you know, where where I'm thinking about this is obviously the regulatory lens on consumer focused or individual focused Web three propositions, and that you know you've worked in both the regulated blockchain and crypto space, and now the space that doesn't require regulation. It doesn't have regulation on top because it's infrastructure. How are you thinking about what, what has it been like for you and working in the regulated space versus working in the, the space that doesn't require regulation in terms of seeing projects and products and initiatives grow and it, you know and start to scale in the market? Yeah, I, I probably have a unique view on this because I spent years <laughs> practicing as a lawyer. So I don't think I necessarily have the same view that a lot of people do in the industry. I think that there's definitely a compliance burden and there's definitely a lot of administrative overhead that comes with being regulated. But in the infrastructure space, I actually think, or in the kind of institutional space, let's say not just infrastructure, but in the yep. institutional space, I actually think that regulation can drive adoption and can drive interest in the market because a lot of your clients are themselves regulated institutions or like if you think about it, what does regulation bring? Regulation brings a level of oversight, which gives people comfort in the fact that their counterparty or the business that they're interacting with is a legitimate business that's resilient and has certain very important processes and controls in place. And I think when you operate in the institutional space, whether in infrastructure or otherwise, clients expect a certain level of behavior from you. They expect you to have these resilient internal processes and practices, you know, getting ISO certified like we are, that's a really big deal because that gives people a level of comfort in how we run our business. Having an AML and compliance program actually gives people a level of comfort as well, whether or not you're, you're required to have one by law. I think, I think the institutional space is, is different to retail in that the expectation, even if there's no regulatory expectation, the expectation from your clients is that regulated or not, you hold yourself up to a certain standard and you operate at a certain level. And often that reflects the requirements that you would have under regulation, a kind of regulatory regime as well. So yeah. I yeah, actually think no, it that, can potentially be a good thing in our space. It can. Well, like, you know, looking at, at the different certification processes that I went through when I was in traditional finance and now looking at what, you know, tech firms have available to them, like SOC 2. Right, and what is the the one you mean? I, IS. Which We're one ISO is that? certified. Oh, absolutely. David Heath, who's a friend from a business called Circuit, you know, the very earliest stages decided to go after that, and that's you know really helped their business grow from two people, you know, three years ago up to about thirty people with funding that they got in the last couple of years. So that's that's been critically important to them. And on that point, on on regulation being helpful. Owen Fitzgerald and I were talking about this last week on the show was that, you know, someone had asked me, is there a point of trying to offer 
to decentralized exchanges the ability to identify their customers. And I'm like, well, they don't have to, and nor do they want to, and nor would the customers want to. And Owen said to me, well, why wouldn't you want to? And I said, well, it's not because I'm afraid of them knowing who I am, because I'm reporting my trading anyway. It's that I don't trust them with the data, right? I don't believe that they have robust compliance processes in place to be able to, you know, to be able to to protect my data and for all to be safe. So when you're looking at it from an institutional angle and having things like SOC 2 and ISO, that does help to create that trust. And trust can be yeah. obviously everything in business, right? And I, I think it's about proportionate regulation, though, that's appropriate for the activity that you're carrying out. And I think that's what the challenge is. So like you said, if you are an infrastructure company being regulated for, you know, where are the risks inherent in your activities? And maybe the focus of regulators would be on the resilience of the network and your processes there, because that's that's the role that you carry out in the ecosystem. And I think that's the main thing, making sure that as the regulatory environment develops and evolves for crypto and blockchain, that it's focusing on the business activities. So obviously you've got the characterization of the token and, and the kind of interaction which is what the sec has been focusing on but looking and you're stripping away all of that and just focusing really on what what are the business activities that the company is carrying out where is the inherent risk in those activities and let's focus on that so that they don't Mm. inadvertently i do believe like i'm saying i'm kind of contradicting myself here or i said regulation is a good thing but it can stifle innovation if it's applied in the Mm. wrong way so i think having that balance and and focus on the, the the actual activities itself and not the industry as a whole or even like to a point I, I do think you need to look at the characterization of token but you can't have this broad brush approach which yeah. actually i think mika's characterization of tokens isn't the worst i think it's at least better and provides a little bit more certainty than and than what we're seeing in the us at the moment where there's still a lot of uncertainty around the characteristics of tokens yeah yeah no ha- having having that clarity and knowing what you know, do I fall into that camp or not? Like I went yeah. through with somebody last week, even on the the Ireland VASP or virtual asset service provider regulation, I said, one, two, three, four, five, are you doing one of these five things? Yes or no, right? Having that certainty on whether or not you need to actually apply for that authorization is a good thing, right? Yeah. And, you know, VASP is just a drop in the bucket compared to where Mika is going to go. And, you know, what do they say? 18 months after it's, it's, signed into law it will become effective yeah. so we're looking at some point in 2024 i expect at this stage right with a with a fast um, follow probably for DeFi afterwards yeah oh definitely definitely no yeah. and when you talk about <laughs> understanding the activities that you're conducting and what are the risks yeah i can hear the lawyer and you coming out of more yeah Absolutely. definitely i mean uh, for, for me but i guess the the danger of what mika has done and and i know the regulators and the policymakers are aware of this is unfortunately because it ties back to our earlier conversation about how the industry keeps evolving defining it in the way that they have done means that the industry will continue to evolve and how do you find that balance between providing certainty and definition but also being able to adapt your concepts as new use cases pop up and i know that's the challenge they had for example with DeFi. so i i don't envy the policymakers. i think they 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 do the best they can but you know we're in the industry and struggling to keep up mm. with all of the changes i can't even imagine what they're experiencing as they as they go and try and figure out the most appropriate way to to regulate it I know, I know. It's it's not easy. Speaking of things that are not easy, try pulling out an engine of a car that's going 150 miles per hour and replacing it with a new engine. And that's something that Ethereum went through in the last few weeks with the merge. 
And, you know, some of the stats coming back from that is that it's 99% less usage of energy. People had compared the usage of electricity by the Ethereum network to be equivalent to that of Belgium in the country of Belgium or 0.2% of the world's yeah, energy that. usage. And now it's not even in the, the low percentages or even one-tenth or one-one-hundredth of a percentage since, you know, since the merge. How strategically impactful do you think the Ethereum merge and what's coming after that will be, uh, how important will that be to the Black Damon business? I think it's, I think it's really important, not just for the, not just for Block Damon, but for the industry as a whole, I was trying, it's funny because the morning after the merge happened, I didn't sleep at all that night. I was waiting. My phone was off silent for the first time overnight, <laughs> kept waiting okay. for the phone call and then couldn't, um, couldn't sleep properly because I kept being convinced that I'd missed the phone call. So I kept waking up and checking my phone and I was trying to explain to my husband <laughs> that night and the next morning about the big event. He, he kind of, bless him, he, he tried to engage. <laughs> I know he just yeah. didn't, he didn't understand it because I, I guess you just not, you have to kind of be in the industry to really get the significance of the event. And I think for me, the biggest thing, and this is probably because I wear that operational hat and it's the way my brain works, but the biggest thing is that it really did prove that you can operate a decentralized network at scale. The fact that they did that incredibly complex network upgrade, practically no downtime. They didn't compromise the security and the decentralization of the protocol and just the sheer volume of people that were involved in that across the globe purely decentralized, I think was just a milestone moment because in my mind, it moved it from being this nascent technology concept, which I think it, it had evolved from that, but there was still, still echoes of that when people would talk about the concept and it proved that, no, this is industrial. It's not straightforward. It is complex and you need experts to understand, but you can actually have events like this on chain and be able to have them run smoothly without needing to have the normal centralized processes that you'd have with a network upgrade like this. So I think that was very that was a very big deal for the industry and and for Block Demon as well because we were we played such a you know we were actively involved in that process and it was fantastic for our team to be involved and to have experienced that. I think it was a, a really big deal for everyone. And then I think the other thing is really, you know, with Ethereum, they've brought a new way of, or they've introduced new ways of incentivizing network participation with transaction rewards and MEV. I think that's really interesting too, the participation in the network and how we incentivize that in order to increase the resilience of the network because more people that are involved, the more secure and resilient the network is. So I think it's, it's a, it's a really interesting concept. I'm quite excited about it. I know that it's also going to drive a lot of interest in the network as well from our clients. So I think that's another really important evolution with the, the ETH merge. And then I think just generally the number of new validators that have joined the network, the people who are now probably going to be a little bit more interested in it because of the fact that some of the concerns around ESG have been removed and energy consumption. I, I just think it's, it's been an amazing moment to show that the industry can operate at that scale. It's introduced new people perhaps to the network and to the industry that have been watching it from, from a bit of a distance and waiting to see what happens and perhaps might have had some concerns around different parts of different parts of the way that the, the proof of work 
protocol was operating previously. So I think it's it's exciting times. What what that will mean in the future, I think, is going to again come down to the fact that one of the things about I love about Ethereum is that it's got that utility aspect to it, and it's so. Mm-hmm. It's it's so supportive of different use cases and there's so many different ways people can use that. So I'm hoping and I expect that we'll see lots of new innovation happen on top of the network now, which will which you know will will just be great for the industry as a whole. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great point because you wonder how much that how clogged the network had been and how, you know, it had slowed down the gas fees, even though the merge is not intended to significantly reduce gas fees, it feels like it has so far, but I think it's just a a minor aberration. But all of that had been a big narrative in crypto and blockchain for the last couple of years. And and what might that had driven towards layer twos like a polygon or others that where you then are dealing with different set of constraints. So I'm excited as well to see what founders are then saying to me, listen, we are building on Ethereum, right? And here's why. And yeah. um, that we're, we're just at the very beginning. We're only, a, you know, a few weeks on. And I, I was listening to the to the guys on the Bankless podcast talk about this and that the Ethereum, the, I think it was the, was it the burn of tokens? Or no, it was the supply created. It was the supply created since moving away from the more complex proof of work into the the, the less intensive proof of stake. And that the the Ethereum tokens that are created it was already far less and was seeing this impact on the supply. Now, impact on supply, will that then drive demand and drive the price higher? It's like, well, we're looking at a three to five year arc here, not th- something that's going to happen over three to five weeks. But yeah, excited to see how this all unfolds. Thinking about shifting gears a more back into your track record a bit, as I talked about with you at the beginning, you've done a lot of different things. What do you think have been your go-to character traits, really, the, the, the parts of inside Amor that have enabled you to adapt to so many different situations, almost like a founder, an entrepreneur, you know, uh, in, the, in the middle of growing and scaling what w- would become a unicorn? It feels like, you, you know, you've adapted to so many different situations. What are the things inside that you think have, have enabled you to do that? I'm sorry, that was my Siri on my watch. He was listening to you. <laughs> um, I get that too. I get that yeah, too. I must have I must have knocked it with my hand. I think one of the things I've been told before, actually, it was one of my colleagues at City who mentioned this. He said I'm really good at thinking around corners and joining abstract dots. I think that's probably okay. That's probably it. A lot of, I always think of things as key learnings and skills that you pick up being a way to look at something or a way to approach something and being able to see the analogies and see the similarities in context. I think, you know, whether we were talking earlier about fishing rights and and Bitcoin, but maybe it's, for example, how to use your, I I ran a design team for a while at um, BNP. In fact, I started the Design Center of Excellence there. And I remember I used to scratch my head and I used to joke with the guys and say, how, how did a lawyer end up running a design team? They taught me a lot about creative thinking, a lot about human-centric design. And I was able to use a lot of my training from my, my legal training on how to, how to break down a problem into its core pieces and how to approach it in a very structured and analytical way. You know, the whole Iraq thing issue 
rule application conclusion is what they teach you at law school. And I think core skills like that are transferable, whether you're trying to solve a complex legal problem or whether you're trying to put together a business case or even, you know, with the design team, we used to use it a lot as well, like really focusing, stripping out the noise, the jargon, um, which every industry has its own jargon and looking at kind of the core issues and trying to address them directly and see how you can build solutions off the that address the core issues. I think that's something where just that ability to see how those skills can move horizontally is something that, that I've been really lucky to, to leverage in my career. And then I think the curiosity, like I mentioned earlier, my career hasn't been planned. A lot of people have, I've, I've been asked that before by people I've mentored, you know, how do, how do I get a career like yours? How do I plan it? And I've said, it hasn't been planned. I'm I'm curious. I love opportunities. I'm not afraid to try and chase the interesting work, I suppose, because I think you're happier in life when you're doing work that you love. Yeah. So, yeah, curiosity and the ability to kind of see the differences and similarities between different contexts and different concepts and because you kind of stripped away the the outer coding, I suppose. Do you, do you, do you ever find, like I, I get, you know, my sisters say to me, Pete, bridge too far. Right. So, you know, that, 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 that seeing the similarities and I love a good analogy that sometimes I do go a bridge too far in terms I haven't brought people along because you are thinking three, four, five steps ahead. How do you bring yeah. people along? How do you do that? Yeah, no, definitely. That happens to me a lot. One of my colleagues actually said it to me yesterday. I had, he came back with something and I was like, yep, I, that, that's where I was thinking too. And he was like, you're always, you're always a few steps ahead. Um, yep. I think, I think one of the skills that I picked up actually when I was doing marketing and PR that I've brought through and also, you know, it, it's also what designers do too, is focusing on your audience and your audience could be a colleague. It could be someone in your team. It could be a client, like whoever it is that you're communicating with and understanding it from their viewpoint whether you're trying to explain a concept to them whether you're trying to ask them to do something or you're trying to sell someone something just putting yourself in their shoes and not assuming that you know what they want and taking the time to ask them but then also understanding and this is this is the ironic thing because I'm in a tech role in the tech industry but I'm really about people because I think at the end of the day businesses are run by people and just kind of understanding what that person is interested in and contextualizing it for them so that you can bring them on the journey because everyone's just trying to do their job at the end of the day everyone has their own things that they'll be focused on whether it's whether it's things that they need to know to do their job or it's things that they might be concerned about in the kind of broader context of the career and just trying to contextualize stuff and taking the time to adapt the communication to a particular person or group of people so that you can really not drag them along, but bring them on the journey because they understand it. And I think a lot of the times in business, whether it's a client that you're trying to win, a colleague that you're trying to work with, a, a lot of the times it's a lack of understanding that can cause challenges. And when people actually understand what's happening and they feel like they have that transparency and the comfort and they understand where the direction, whether it's what your business is and who you, who you are and how you operate or, or what the plan is for a particular evolution in the business. I think that's the main thing. So communicating and, and contextualizing. Oh, absolutely. Communicating and, you know, the, the body language and things you do are, are critically important understanding that people respond differently. And 
my first move away from a completely homogenous set of people that I had to manage back in the 90s at Fidelity, I went to Bermuda and a woman that I had on my team, she was from Mali, I think, in Western Africa. And I lost her, right? I, I, she was still working with me, but she wasn't responding and to my coaching and what I was trying to do to motivate her. And anytime that we had a one-to-one -one conversation, slowly over the weeks, it, it just became less and less engaging. And I finally, I said to her, I said, what's, what's going on? And she's like, I, I just can't get over that thing you do. I said, what are you talking about? She's like, you sit there with your leg crossed over the other and I could see the sole of your shoe. I'm like, sorry. I, and she said, well, where I come from, that is an insult. When you show someone the bottom of your shoe, that is an insult. I'm like, listen, I didn't know that. She's like, clearly, and she's like, I know you didn't know that either, but it's in my subconscious that I'm having trouble with that. So I stopped it and I literally put my foot down, right? So it's, you know, there are these little things when you get into international business and outside of the culture you grew up in, that, you know, communication, context, body language, everything can have a big impact and be able to adapt to that is, is great. Yeah, um, definitely. That was one thing that people may not have known about me, but the last question we ask everybody on this podcast and more is the following. What is one thing that people wouldn't expect to know about you? So I, I guess this, is, this podcast is more about my professional life. So this is something that everyone in my personal life knows, but not a lot of people that work with me or know me professionally don't know that I'm obsessed with cooking. I have, okay. I have, I have dreams of owning a food truck one day. Like that's my... That's my big ambition. There's all sorts of jokes amongst my friends in this. I, I, I don't know that I actually want to work in the food truck because I don't do well with kind of tight spaces. <laughs> I love the idea okay. of a food truck. Southeast Asian street food. Yeah, I love I love cooking. I love food. I dream about food. I think about it all the time. It's my creative outlet. It's how I socialize. It's how I show love. I show love through food. I love nothing more okay. than for people. And it's the way, ironically, the way I wind down so I can do a 12 or 13 hour day and then cooking a big plate of pasta or some curry or something like that for my family is a, mm. a way that my brain just kind of de-stresses and winds down. I'm with you. I'm with you. And what are you going to call the food truck? I hadn't thought about that. I, the other thing that I guess people wouldn't expect to know about me is I'm a creative thinker, but I'm not an inventive thinker. I'm never the person who comes up with the best name or the idea. I'm the person who helps turn the idea into a business. <laughs> I'm not, that's not me. In fact, I remember, I joke a lot because I remember when Google first launched, I remember having conversations with my dad just being like, that is the worst name that I have ever heard. It will never take <laughs> off. It sounds so silly. It's like, it doesn't make sense. So yeah, maybe a play on my, my first name. That's always a... <laughs> nice handy well, one. Listen, well, listen. Use it to I, my advantage. I, you could, you could, and I, I, that was the first thing I was thinking of was something, you know, some alliteration of a more and and something else. And but on the train up to Belfast tomorrow morning, obviously we're recording this on a Wednesday, but I'll be heading up with with Kurt Pittman and Hugh McGurr and Matt McAllister. Shout out to all three of those guys. And uh, I'll, I'll tease us out and see if we can come up with a name for you while the four of us are sitting okay. there two, two by two facing each other. That'll be our, our chat Perfect. up to Belfast. I mean, it, it, it is all in a name, so especially for a food truck. I know what it's going to look like. I know the menu. I just can't. I can't get the name up in, in my head. Uh, I love that movie with John Favreau and with his food truck and then the show that he's done now. And the fact yeah, that great. he is, you know, one of the main creative 
parts of the continuation of the Star Wars universe now is just even more awesome. So yeah, I can't do any better than, than me with, with good food and good Star Wars. So, you know, I think we're, we're, we're on the same point here. Well, listen, Amor, thank you. I love this conversation. And there were snippets that you dropped in there that I could have dragged into probably another 30 or 40 minute conversation. So let's do that offline at some stage because I always get such wonderful insights from you. So thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks so much. That does it for this week, folks. Thanks to Amora Sexton for opening up her mind to help us figure out why she does what she does. Links to get in touch with Amora and learn more about Block Damon are in the show notes on our website, moneyneversleeps.ie, so check us out online. Also, thanks to Conan Brophy from Create Sound for mixing and editing this episode. Conan is an excellent media man to get in touch with when you're thinking about launching your own podcast. As for me, I'm an early-stage startup investor focused on where fintech meets crypto and crypto meets Web3. If you'd like to talk to me about your business, drop me a line on info at moneyneversleeps.ie. Finally, till next time, thanks for listening. See ya! Money never sleeps, pal.